Hey, Laura, and welcome back to Bros and Murder. I am me, you are you, we're in this together, and that was your opening. So now this week, I am talking to you about an axe-wielding murderer. This woman who I'm talking to you about is part of, well, one of my first heavy hitters I'm going to be doing, because she is a prolific, infamous black serial killer. So let's step into my Wayback Machine, and we'll dip into 1911, when I think polio was still ravaging on. Extra, extra, X-Man is a woman. Also, is your neighbor conjuring the dead? Yes, because there's nothing else to do. Between February 1911 and October 1912, the South became the hunting ground for an axe murderer. A murderer, many believe, was a hulking man who turned out to be a young woman looking to cheat death and become immortal. It gives me real, like, Marie Laveau, American Horror Story Coven vibes, but less stealing babies and more murdering babies. Clementine Bernabette was the ex-murderer who was convicted of one murder but confessed to a shit ton more. Clementine Bernabette is believed to have been born around 1894 in Louisiana to Raymond Bernabette and Nina Porter. Bernabette's father was reportedly abusive, an abusive family. So at some point, they all moved to Lafayette in 1909 together. He started up a shop there and just became a drunk, abusive shopkeeper who cheated on his wife. So basically, he ain't shit. But I guess the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree because... His kids ain't shit either. At the age of 19, Bernabette joined a cult named the Church of Sacrifice, which prompted the start of the murders that she committed. Honestly, it's shocking that a teenager committed a bunch of murders, but when you hear she hung out at a place called the Church of Sacrifice, mass murder makes sense. Because the name implies it. Bernabette's killings followed a consistent pattern. She would often murder the entire family rather than kill one person. Using an axe... She'd butcher her victims, cutting off their heads and sometimes their limbs. When she had mutilated the entire family, Bernabette would then lie their bodies in bed together and leave them in a certain position to be found. The positions varied. The killings occurred between Lafayette and Texas, and it covered a pretty, I guess, significant mileage for a 17-year-old woman to go on a killing spree with. It's believed that Bernabette's first murder occurred in January 1911. The victims being Walter and Salviana Byers, also their infant child. At 605 Western Avenue in West Creole, Louisiana, I think I messed up that name, was the scene of a horrific murder of an entire family. Officer, and I'm going to pronounce this on purpose because I looked up into the guy as kind of an asshole, so I'm going to just call him 
Ball Ill. Officer Ball Ill, the first to arrive, found Walter's buyers, his wife, and small son all lying in bed with their skulls split wide open. The sheets underneath of them were drenched in blood. The front door was locked, which indicated that the murderer had entered through an open window. There was no need to search for the murder weapon since in the corner of the room next to the head of the bed was a bucket full of blood and a bloodied propped up axe next to it. The local newspaper called it the most... The most brutal murder in the history of this section. Which kind of implies that there have been worse murders in other sections. And we're not going to address that. I just feel like that headlining is kind of bearing the lead a little bit because now I want to know about what the fuck is going on around me. And I also do love the glimpse into a time before DNA testing where police officers would come across a bucket of blood and just be like, hmm, gross. From different reports, police say that they were used to crimes in the quote-unquote poor parts of the town. And I'm pretty sure we can all infer what they mean. Black part. But the brutality of the murders, being brain with an axe, surprised them so much that they really focused and honed in on solving who was doing this. It was such a horrible scene that Sheriff Luis Lacoste and Deputy Coroner Clark, accompanied by a score of deputies, all crossed the railroad tracks from the whitewashed colonial side of town to downtown Lafayette immediately to try and solve this case before the murder can continue. Later that same month, the parents and two children of the Andros family were murdered in the same way. Inside their cabin, the bodies of Alexander and Mimi had been placed by the bedside, propped up on their knees with the woman's arms draped over her husband's shoulders as if in a prayer. The baby and Tal were laid in front of them on the bed. Were it not for the gore, the bone, and the blood spatter, it would have almost looked kind of s- serene? Like a nativity scene, but with people being bringing with an axe, which is kind of metal. It was reported that the bodies were still warm, placing the time of death around midnight, because they got there in the morning. The killer had entered the shack through the kitchen door, did the bashings, and then left the same way, with no fucks given. The only lead they had at this time was a man named Garcon Godfrey. Okay. An escaped lunatic from Pennsville, less than 80 miles away from Lafayette. Still, they didn't actually have anything to connect him to the murders, so he was obviously, you know, released, and they didn't no longer saw him as a suspect. Similar cases soon appeared further down the tracks in neighboring Texas. After a few false leads, the ensuing investigation led authorities to the Ber- to Bernabette's father, Raymond. The person who tipped him off was his mistress. I personally was shocked that his mistress like threw him under the bus like that. But then after further reading, I heard that she snitched the day after they got into a big fight. And I understand entirely because I'm also petty as fuck. Raymond was known to be a bad guy, a violent man who seemed capable of axe murder. When police Lafayette arrested him, they were confident that they had the right man. At his trial, Barnabas' own daughter, Clementine, testified against him. Her recollections and apparent fear of her dad played a significant role in convicting him. The Bernabette's family testified that Raymond by their Bernabette family tested against Raymond by recounting him leaving town that night for unknown reasons and returning home late with blood and brain matter on his shoes and shirt. 
Zephyrine stated that he returned home. Raymond was bragging about the murders that he committed and said that the victims deserved it. A jury quickly found Bernabé guilty and his attorneys immediately appealed. He deserved a new trial, they said, partly because he was too drunk to go through the proceedings of a trial and didn't really know what was going on because he was so drunk. The motion was granted. While Raymond Bernabet was awaiting trial, another famicide took place. In November 1911, Norbert and Asami Randall and their four children, ages two through eight, were murdered like the previous slangs. This led authorities to consider another suspect. The police then decided to investigate Clementine. In the Bernabet's home, a man's suit covered with blood and brain matter was found in Clementine's closet. This prompted the police to arrest Bernabet as the prime suspect along with her father. When initially arrested, Clementine denied all connections to the killings. She actually laughed through the questioning and insisted that she had no idea who Cobble's clothes got into her room. Now, so two suspects are in jail, but the body count is still starting to climb and climb and rise up. There were more attacks in mid-January. Marie Warner and her three children aged 9 through 12 in Crowley, Louisiana, and uh, a man named Felix and his wife and their three children in Lakes Charles, Former dead in Texas a month later. It's a lot of deaths. And they were all killed in the same fashion. They were mutilated. Heads and limbs were separated from the torso and strewn all over the house. People discovered a common thread amongst all the victims. All the victims actually belonged to a religious group called the Church of Sacrifice. And Clementine was reportedly the leader. Or due to other conflicting reports, she may have just been a high-ranking member. And was killing her followers. Which, again, when you look at a church called the Church of Sacrifice, yeah, that makes sense. The sacrifice is your life. Just before April Fool's Day in 1912, Clementine started talking. She told detectives about her downward spiral into degeneracy. She also introduced her practice of voodoo and how she got into voodoo. She then described the slangs. Disguised as a man, she hopped on a train and committed her first axe murder in 1909. She described another murder, saying that she had thrown open the door of a tiny cabin. She crept upon a sleeping husband and wife, and before either could arise, she split their heads in two. She told how the four children on the floor started to cry out and scream, and she stealthily, she said how she stealthily approached them in their beds, swinging her axe and killing them both with one blow. Then she went to the other two children, quickly hacking them down, and then she's told about how she like scattered all the bits all over the room just for like shits and giggles. Clementine continued to tell her herself, being a true clown, she described the killings of the Andrews family. Living in an isolated section of Mississippi in like the deep woods, like secluded, like a cabin in the woods. She said that these people, according to a voodoo doctor, had refused to obey the message from God. So this prompted their murders. So she, with her other religious crazed fanatics, went to the cabin in the dead of night with axes in their hands, hacked the family up to bits, and then ended the night in a, like... They all got together and just prayed and chanted over these mutilated corpses. 
Clementine took credit for 20 killings, but added that she didn't act alone. She said that her followers helped her, including her father and brother. They would continue exterminating families in poor African-American neighborhoods so they get caught. The murders themselves took place on Sunday nights, preferably after the worshippers had worked themselves up into a religious frenzy after the meetings. So they get all hopped up on Jesus and Voodoo, and then they go out and they kill people. Now, for a motive, Clementine believed that human sacrifice was the path to immortality. Victims were chosen at random, and children were snuffed out for their own good. Quote, we thought it'd be better to kill them than leave orphans, as they would suffer, she said. Clementine claimed that a priestess of the Church of Sacrifice had given her and her friends conjure bags that would grant them supernatural powers and make them undetectable by authorities, which I guess worked for some time. This spurred Bernadette into killing her. This spurred Bernadette into committing her first murder to test out whether it would work or not. She said that we weren't afraid of being arrested because I carried a voodoo bag, which protected us from punishment. Which again, I guess, kind of worked for a little bit. Police, pre police predicted that there would be at least 50 arrests of her followers, but they only pulled in a handful. There are no records saying what happened to her father or brother or alleged accomplices, including the voodoo doctor that sewed her protective charms and potions. The church disbanded after the murders. At only the age of 18, in October 1912, Clementine Bernabette was sentenced to life in prison at the Anglo State Penitentiary. In July 1913, she tried to escape jail but was caught. However, in August 1923, Bernabette walked out of prison, which after after which no knowledge existed for whereabouts until around 2002. A story popped up on a website that hinted about her life in prison. An online presence called Voodoo Gal 11 wrote that in the 1980s, she discovered that her great-grandmother knew a lot about the murder rampages and comparing pictures of her grandmother when she was younger to the pictures in the newspaper that read things like murderous negro they looked pretty much alike so if that's true and this woman who said that she believed that her great-grandmother was bernadette that means that after these killings bernadette went on to live a pretty long life and died at the age of 104 now, my thoughts on this, I think it's fucking crazy, but I also do think it gives the whole voodoo thing a bad light because I have I have family who are from Hades and, you know, they practice voodoo. I've done my research into it myself. Voodoo is not a bad religion. Uh, voodoo has a lot of, like, parallels to, like, Catholicism, and that's why, like, in New Orleans, uh, a lot of people who practice voodoo easily kind of meshed well with the catholics and christians because they make connections like oh our papa legba is like your fucking saint paul like same you know archetypes is different names so don't walk away from this thinking that like voodoo is evil and bad there's extremists in every religion it happens also i do want to call american horror story who fucked up papa legba because papa legma is not the voodoo devil he's just like a gatekeeper to the spirit world the baron is the voodoo devil they could have just got the name right so if someone would have googled it they would have got it right so yeah and that's the story about clementine burned to bed
And now to get into my weird dumb crime of the week. So a woman was shot in her boob, but her implant saved her life. And what may be a medical first, a woman's silicone breast implant helped deflect a bullet that saved her life. Doctors credit that, what I'm calling the super boob, for preventing a bullet from striking 30-year-old woman's vital organs. In an incident that took place recently in, in Toronto, Canada, the woman told doctors that she was walking down the street when suddenly she felt heat and pain on the left side of her chest. She looked down and saw blood and brought herself to the local emergency room. Like, goddamn. Imagine getting shot in the titty and taking yourself to... She even... <sighs> ambulances are expensive. There's, I get it. She probably took an Uber to the hospital. It was cheaper. But this... Physicians treated her by removing the implant and, you know, fixing the wound. The bullet broke one of her ribs, but doctors say that she would have died if not for the implant. I'm sure investigators and everybody else were very hands-on with the case. The firearm, however, was never recovered, and the shooter was also never identified. Now, this story just shows to me how terrifying being a woman can be. Because even if you get shot... Everyone's attention is still going to be on your boobs. They didn't even get the person who shot her. I wonder if they even asked, hey, why would a random guy run up to you on the street and shoot you? Everyone's just more worried about our tits. Well, that's all I got for you. Enjoy the music coming up. Um, follow us on social medias. And stay sexy. Wash your hands.